You may be seated. Thank you, 10% who followed, who waited for directions. Sam, thanks for leading music for us today. I know you'll lead a little bit more later on as well. As far as I know, it's your first time. So thankful for him. He, uh, he was freeing me up from leading music so that I could uh, devote a little bit more time to, in time this week in studying to the preparation of God's Word. Uh, this, this morning, uh, Pastor Lewis and Anna are in India serving there. And so that is the cause of their absence. And Pastor Travis and his family are in Texas for a wedding that he was officiating this weekend. So he'll be with his family returning uh, to us tomorrow. So you get a lot of Laramie today. I apologize. I apologize. Erica, make sure you take note of anybody who just said amen for a lot of Laramie. Erica would like a word. It is always a joy to be able to proclaim God's word. We have been in Exodus for a while, about a month or so, and we are taking a break for these three weeks that lead up to Easter, next week being Easter. So last week we started a three-week series in the book of Isaiah. So Pastor Lewis preached to us from Isaiah 49, looking at the second of four servant songs. Uh, there's also a third servant song in 50, and then there's a fourth servant song in 52 and 53, which Pastor Lewis will preach from next week. So I want to encourage you to stay tuned for that fourth and final servant song from Isaiah 52 and 53, a passage we know so well. I thought it'd be helpful to recount a little bit of history as we look at our text today, Isaiah 51, 17 through 23. So everyone's familiar with the first few kings of Israel. You had Saul and then David, and then you had his son Solomon. And then after that, the kingdom split into a northern kingdom with Israel in the north and a southern kingdom with Judah in the south with Jerusalem as its capital. Well, as time went on, uh, God's people became more and more rebellious. And so we get to the reigns of uh, kings such as Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And these were the kings that reigned during the time of Isaiah's. Uh, Wikipedia is trying to tell me about Hezekiah. She found it on the web, she says. And so we have these four kings that were reigning during the time of Isaiah's prophecy. And so the occasion we find really quickly at the very beginning of Isaiah in chapter 1. Why was this prophecy needed? Well, for a few reasons. Chiefly, Isaiah's, sorry, not Isaiah, but Israel's sin. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we see of their rebellion. We see of Israel's rebellion in verses 2 through 4. We see of their idolatry in verses 10 through 15. We see of their injustice in 16 through 17. And then throughout Isaiah, we see of their worldly alliances as they aligned themselves with other countries such as Syria, Assyria, even Egypt. You think they would know better of that than by now, but even Egypt and in Babylon. We see this throughout the book. And so God is calling Isaiah to a task. We're all quite familiar with Isaiah 6. We re-reference that passage often as a as a pattern for our worship here at Woodlawn of God, man, Christ, 
and response. In Isaiah 6, we see God giving Isaiah a vision and then following this vision, calling him to service. It's interesting what Isaiah says in here after seeing the Lord holy and exalted. Isaiah says in verse 5 of chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, how did he know this? For his eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah understands the state of the people whom he is being called in the next few verses to serve and to proclaim a message. It's a very difficult message as well. Listen to the message that God tasks Isaiah with here in verse 9. And he, that is God, said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. It continues like this. This, is not, uh, this ought not be a very encouraging message for Isaiah to have to deliver. He's essentially being given an impossible task. But what is the message of Isaiah throughout his book? Well, it's twofold. It's a message of salvation through judgment. The book of Isaiah is a message of salvation through judgment. We see this judgment in the first 39 chapters. In chapter 7, there's prophecy that the northern kingdom will fall to Assyria. In chapter 39, towards the end, we see prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, to Babylon. We see both of these prophecies fulfilled, the latter fulfilled in the last two chapters of 2 Kings, chapters 24 and 25, a hundred years later. But this judgment that will fall upon Israel isn't the final word. This judgment isn't the final word. It is but a means by which God will purify his people and bring them salvation, leading a remnant, a remnant of God's people to salvation, and one day a much more permanent new Jerusalem. This section begins in chapter 40 of this, this hope for salvation. It begins in chapter 40. Listen to these words at the beginning of chapter 40. So having just completed the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 39, some time has passed, and now, after God's judgment, he says this, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. God has brought a message of comfort amidst the trials, much more than trials, really, the judgment that they are experiencing. And in this range of chapters, 40 to the end of the book, chapter 66, we find our text today. So if you will, turn with me to chapter 51, verses 17 through 23. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bull, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her. Among all the sons she has borne, there is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she has brought up, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, 
famine, and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this. You who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. What I want us to learn from this text today is that helpless and hopeless sinners receive help and hope through Christ's substitutionary atonement. Helpless and hopeless sinners find help and hope through Christ's substitutionary atonement. Chapter 51 begins what is some encouragement from the Lord, but also a call for obedience. At the beginning of 51, we see three encouragements to obey the voice of the servant, the voice of God's servant. We hear about him in the previous servant song in chapter 50. And then in verse 10 of chapter 50, you'll see who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant. So here in 51, God is giving us in his word several reasons why his people ought to obey his word. First of all, I do want to point this out. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 51, 51.1, it says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Is he speaking to everyone? No, he's speaking to the one who pursues righteousness. Look again at verse 4. Give attention to me, my people. And again, a little bit later, verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. His message is not for all people. It is for his people, those who have been made his through righteousness. But look at these quickly. Let's look at these encouragements. In verse 1 of chapter 51, here's what he tells us. He tells us, well, beginning in 1 through 3, that God has made a nation from Abraham. What was Abraham's circumstance at the beginning? Well, he was one. He was one person, not one years old, one person. And he had a wife, a wife who was barren and unable to bear children. And what happened to them? They became a great nation. These words in verse two communicate this well. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I may bless him and multiply him. Look at the second encouragement here, over in verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. So not only did he make a great nation out of Abraham and Sarah, but he also is communicating to them his eternal salvation. And then thirdly, verses seven and eight. 
Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. The revile of the people against Israel is only for a moment. It's temporary. But God's vindication of his people is eternal. Is eternal. These are three encouragements. By the way, notice how each of those three encouragements start. Verse 1, listen. Verse 4, give attention. Verse 7, again, listen. And then he moves into three encouragements for the people of God to respond in faith, beginning in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, actually, it's not God who says. It's the people who say, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. How interesting. In the first seven verses, God tells his people to listen, to give attention. Again, to listen. And how do God's people respond? Wake up, God. For them, God's judgment upon them as they are handed over to the people of Babylon seemed as if God was asleep. And so now, as they go to him in prayer, they are saying, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made, and they continued to recount all that God had done in the past? Was it not you? And then what does God say in response? Verse 12. They said, awake twice. So he says, I, I, twice. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your maker. He continues to go on to correct their waywardness, their their own sin. But it's interesting how he begins our text for this morning. Our text this morning, beginning in 17, says, wake yourself, wake yourself. What did God's people say to him? Awake, awake. Now God says, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. As we look at these first few verses in 17 through 20, what we see in this part of our text is how helpless and how hopeless God's people are. Now that sentence by itself should startle you. No, certainly God's people aren't helpless and hopeless. We are God's people after all. Well, that revelation is coming to them really quickly. But at the moment, they are helpless and hopeless, not because they are God's people, but because they are underneath the judgment of God, of which they can do nothing about. So verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, God says. You might even think of this as God saying, wake up, wake up, get up. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. It's interesting. What are they experiencing right now? The people are experiencing the judgment of of God's hand through Babylon. It'd be really tempting for the people to only focus that their greatest adversary right now is Babylon. Their greatest adversary is not Babylon. 
It is not Babylon who is judging them. It is God who is judging the people. Notice here, God's word says in 17, you who have drunk from the hand of, not Babylon, the hand of the Lord. But in no means should we walk away saying, oh, God is a meanie. No, these people, remember chapter one, they were rebellious, they were idolatrous. They partnered with those who were the enemy of God. They even partnered with with Syria and, and Babylon against God's own people as they were divided in two kingdoms. No, they brought this judgment upon themselves, but it is only God who has authority to execute wrath. And so here, God has executed his wrath through Babylon, and he uses this metaphor of a cup and drinking from this cup his wrath. Listen to how severe God's wrath is on his people. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is a severe judgment. Are you familiar with the word dregs? I, I drink dregs. I drink to the dregs often. Just want you to know that. Now, what I mean by that is I'll finish my cup of coffee and there's a few grounds in the bottom of the cup. You know what I mean? And you, and you see them there and you're like, ah, you could use a little extra caffeine and you should drink it. You just drink the dregs. So what have you done when you've drunk the dregs? You have consumed all that could be consumed of that cup. Now, if you, if you are drinking to the dregs, I hope it is coffee. <laughs> but here, the metaphor is not coffee. The metaphor is alcohol, it is liquor, that which debilitates people. Think of a person drinking to the dregs a bowl of hard liquor. It debilitates the person. They are unable to do anything. I was raised in a home. My, my mom got remarried when I was three or four, and my stepdad was a terrible alcoholic. He would stop by the store on the way home daily and buy pints of, of liquor and would already start on them before he arrived at home. Every day, I saw the debilitating effects of drinking alcohol to the dregs on a daily basis. It is no good. It, it rendered my stepdad worthless. To see him stagger around and to accomplish nothing with his life. As a matter of fact, it took his life. He died very young, around 60. And when he died at 60, he looked 90 or 100. I don't exaggerate. So just think of the effect that this kind of drinking of alcohol has. Here, God is using that to, to communicate how debilitating his cup of wrath has been on his people. If it's that debilitating, then what, what happens next? Look at the next verse. Verse 18, there is none to guide her. Among all the sons she has borne, there is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. Remember Israel, were they a fruitful people? Had they multiplied greatly? They had. Does that seem to be communicated here in this verse? How did they multiply so greatly, yet there is no one to take Israel by her hand and help her walk as she experiences 
this drunken stupor of God's wrath. There is no one to help. So not only is the severity of God's wrath weighing heavily on God's people, they are helpless in God's wrath. They can do absolutely nothing on their own. Even their own people can't help. Verse 20 communicates well why the sons of Israel are no help. Verse 20 says, your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street. Think about that picture. The sons of Israel lying in the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord. They too are drinking from the cup of God's wrath. They are no help. Israel has no help. Not only do they have no help, they have no hope. Back up with me to verse 19. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction. And the second, famine and sword. This description of what God's wrath looks like for the people of God is utter devastation and destruction to all of the people. Who will comfort you? And he goes on to say that the sons have fainted, that they lie in the street, that they too experience the cup of God's wrath. The people of God are completely helpless and hopeless. They are incapable of doing anything about their situation. They can't even stand on their own. But look at our next verse. Verse 21. If the, verse, if the first half of this text, 17 through 20, communicates the helplessness and hopelessness of God's people... Here we go. We got this now. All right. Somebody get my attention when it's two o'clock, okay? That's a joke. Man. Sorry, I didn't know what you mean. Okay. So, if the first half of this text is about the helplessness and the hopelessness of God's people, the second half of this text is about the help and the hope that God offers, gives through a substitute. Remember, there is indeed judgment. But there is salvation awaiting us through that judgment, awaiting God's people. Verse 21, he says, Therefore, hear this. Who? You who are afflicted. And here for the first time, the first time God doesn't use a metaphor. He tells the people what they are. They are afflicted. Who are drunk, but not with wine. He's trying to get their attention here. So notice, Verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up. And in verse 21, hear this. You might think, here's what's going on here. Wake up, wake up, get up, listen, listen up. And so now he says to the people who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine, he says, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Well, this is really interesting he doesn't just say, hey, God's speaking here, and then move on. He says, thus says your Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God who pleads the cause of his people. In other words, he is saying, do I have your attention now? 
I have been your Lord. Not only have I been your Lord, but I reign over all of creation as Yahweh the Lord. And I have pleaded the cause of my people. Do I have your attention now? Listen to what he says here in the second half of verse 22. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. The beginning of our story this morning started with a setting. The people are underneath the, the wrath of God by experiencing the oppression of Babylon. As we proceed through the text, we see that conflict in, begin to become more tense. We see the conflict rise, the rising action, you might say, through God telling them and describing to them their situation of drinking from the cup of wrath. This tension builds. And then, just ahead of the climax, God says, therefore, hear this. He tells them who he is, your Lord, the Lord, the God, the God who pleads the cause of his people. And then we reach the climax of the story. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. From great disaster has come great deliverance. He's removed his wrath from his people. Remember how the section of Isaiah started in in Isaiah 40. What did God say? He said, comfort, comfort my people. What was the question he asked back in verse 18? Sorry, 19. He says, who will console you? At the end, he said, who will comfort you? Certainly, you won't console or comfort yourself, nor will your sons. But God has already told them, I will comfort you. He says in Isaiah 40, 1 and 2, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Listen to this great word of hope. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Think back to the second servant song that Pastor Lewis preached last week. In verses 8 through 10, right after the servant song, we see this. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, but all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by strings of water will guide them. But God is just. He doesn't just eliminate his wrath. His wrath 
because of the rebellion of, peop- of his people, of all people, must be executed. And we see how he accomplishes that here in verse 23. So he has taken from their hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of his wrath. They will drink no more. And what does he do with it? I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. This is Babylon. Who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Think of this picture. Babylon comes to to take over Judah. And they make the people lie down in the streets and walk all over their backs only bringing more attention to the shame of the judgment under which they currently fall. But now he has taken this cup of wrath away from them and given it to the people he used to start with to execute his judgment. Think about Psalm 75 for a moment. Psalm 75, verses 6 through 8. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. We even see this this judgment against the wicked in a more eternal way in Revelation 16. Revelation 16, verse 19 says, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. In this picture, It is not just Babylon, but Babylon represents all who oppose the Lord. They have an eternal wrath awaiting them. So you might say, well, so what for us? We're not Israel in the north. We're not Judah in the south. We're not experiencing Babylonian oppression as the judgment of God, what does this mean to us this morning? I'll draw your attention to the New Testament. Matthew 26, 27. Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. Jesus is with his disciples. And he is the Passover, and they're about to observe the Lord's Supper. He says here in 27, And he took a cup. Sound familiar? A cup? Spoiler, it's a different cup. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This is not the cup of God's wrath, but it's the cup of that represents the blood of Christ poured out on behalf of sinners that the wrath of God might be removed from them and they experience an eternal life. Just a little bit later in Matthew 26, verse 42, Jesus praying says this, again, for the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass, 
unless I drink it, your will be done. What is it that Christ is about to drink within the next 24 hours? He is about to drink the wrath of God. The wrath of God was removed from his people Israel and given to Babylon. But this was not a permanent removal of God's wrath from their life. For Babylon was no worthy sacrifice. Jesus is the worthy sacrifice. Think about the words of Philip Bliss from 1875. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. For those of us in this room who have trusted in Christ by faith, we indeed can say hallelujah, what a Savior, because the wrath of God that we deserve eternally has been removed from us and placed upon his Son, the perfect sacrifice. He took the cup of wrath on our behalf, buried our sins away, and rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. We no longer experience the wrath of of God. We have eternal life. I'm, in, I'm under no illusion that we, have, we don't have any unbelievers in the room with us. I'm certain we do. Unbelievers, if you have not trusted in Christ by faith, you have not benefited from the grace and the mercy of God. You still have the cup of wrath upon you. Consider these words in Revelation 14. And it's not a temporary cup of wrath that you're facing. Revelation 14, 9 and 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. A rejection of Christ results in eternal experience of God's wrath. Drinking it, draining it down to the dregs. And when you've thought there were no more dregs, you look again into the cup and there they are again. It is never ending. But John 7, John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up 
and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The invitation from Christ has been extended to come to him and drink, not of his wrath, but of living water. I encourage you, unbeliever, wake yourself. Wake yourself. Know that the wrath of God's cup has been satisfied in Christ for those who trust and believe. Then the words of another hymnist become real. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. As we close, think of these words from Revelation. Revelation 22, the final chapter in your Bibles. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river of the water of life. Look at the call in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Brothers and sisters, we no longer drink from a cup of wrath. We drink from the river of life. And we drink without any price of our own. We drink because of the merit and the work of Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, buried and risen on the third day. It is his eternal work that affects our lives eternally. And that is our benefit this morning. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this morning. We have your word. It tells us what we deserve. We deserve your wrath. Lord, we were under condemnation. We experienced to a degree this wrath. But Lord, what awaited us in eternity is so much worse. Lord, we are thankful for your sacrifice of your son who drank the cup that we deserve. But Lord, your son being perfect and holy was a worthy sacrifice to accomplish our salvation for eternity. Lord, we humbly submit to him, to you, this morning as the one who provides water from the river of life. We answer your call to come and drink without price, and without money. Lord, for the believer, 
for the believer in this room this morning, I encourage you, know the great salvation. Know the great judgment you have been saved from. I pray that this awareness of, the God's, of God's judgment through this cup of wrath that we have been saved from increases our heart's affections for God, what he has done for us through his son, and that we might love him more. Perhaps this morning you have not trusted in Christ for salvation. To you, God says, come and drink. Not of the cup of wrath, but of the river of the water of life. Drink this water. Trust in what Christ has done. Don't leave today thinking you can stand up from your staggering on your own. You need a comforter, and there is only one God through Christ. In just a moment, I'll be down front. If there is anything that I can pray with you about, I'd be delighted to. There undoubtedly are things weighing upon our hearts in this room. I'd be glad to be in prayer for those for you. Perhaps you're visiting with us today. Perhaps you don't have a church home and you want to express your interest in in Woodlong being your church home, your church family. I'd be delighted to talk to you about that as well. And thirdly, perhaps this morning, as I mentioned earlier, you have not yet trusted in Christ. Myself or hundreds others in this room would be be delighted to talk to you about the salvation that's offered in Christ. Trust in him today. Father, we are so thankful. What a blessing it is to enjoy the river of life, enjoy this living water that you've given us for salvation. May our lives be transformed, not only in status, but in sanctification. May we not just be believers, but we but be believers being conformed into the image of Christ. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.